This program is brought to you by Resonance 104.4 FM. If you like what you hear and want to support our work, please make a donation at fundraiser.resonance.fm. listening to The Clear Spot on Resonance 104.4 FM and DAB in London. I'm Alex Fitch, and in today's program, as that familiar chip tune may have made you anticipate, we're celebrating a birthday, which is to say the 40th birthday of the Vectrex, a somewhat obscure but much-loved video game system from 1982. The Vectrex was unique amongst other games machines that came out at that time for having a built-in screen, and the screen of the Vectrex, unlike other contemporary video game systems, rather than being a pixel-based CRT display, was actually an oscilloscope, and so all games are made up of vector lines, with therefore the games on the machine resembling other titles that were around in arcades in the early 80s, such as Asteroids, Battlezone and Star Wars, although none of these games would become available for the Vectrex until more modern cartridges were released in recent years that had additional power to play these arcade classics. However, the Vectrex did come supplied with a built-in game, Mindstorm, which is quite similar to Asteroids, And between 1982 and 1984, a further 28 games were released, being a mixture of shoot-em-ups, platform games, sports titles, and much more. Since 1996, a healthy homebrew scene has also developed for the Vectrex, with over 100 additional games being released over the last 16 years. And as well as these new games that have been created by new programmers for the machine, Various games that should have been released for the Vectrex in the 80s have also finally made their way to shelves. Some of these are games that were nearly complete, like Pitcher's Duel, Tour de France, and Mailplane. Others were barely more than tech demos, such as CubeQuest. But more recently, there has been the surprise discovery of a game that no one knew about, A Crush of Lucifer, which has similarities to the Death Star levels in Star Wars, as well as an unusual Inferno theme. Some of these games that I've been talking about are available on multi-carts and as downloads for the Vectrex. But the extended version of Dark Tower, which in an early version of Synergy, saw the manufacturer of the Vectrex, Milton Bradley, base one of their video games on a popular board game of the time, was completed by a Scots programmer, Chris Malcolm, who I interviewed a couple of years ago for a similar show, and released by Sean Kelly, one of the founders and curators of the National Video Game Museum in Texas. So I caught up with Sean while he was travelling across country from one video game expo to another to talk about his various new releases of old games for the Vectrex and how these came about. I got the impression from emails that we've exchanged you do a lot of traveling and presumably that's because you're going from one retro video game event to another to some some extent that's what i was here for so in in addition to the vectrex stuff uh, i own a 
I own a vintage uh, video game store in the Chicago area, but I'm also the uh, the founder and director of the National Video Game Museum in, in Frisco, Texas. So on this particular trip, we, we kind of had two purposes. So I left, I left from Chicago last Sunday and uh, I went I went to Colorado to speak with somebody uh, and pick up some donations, and then we had uh, several different uh, stops to do in California to, to pick up some donations for the museum. And then from there, we drove uh, straight straight north to uh, to Portland, where they were having the uh, the Portland Retro Game Retro Gaming Expo, which is it's one of the biggest, if not the biggest, uh, retro game shows in in the United States. Uh, I was there for the weekend, and uh, I was actually selling Vectrek stuff up there. So now I'm finally on my way home. Nice. At the moment, the, the truck that I'm driving in, I've driven 3,730 miles, and I still have 1,700 left to go. So. Wow. That, that's, I mean, you know. The long drive. Yeah, exactly. So before we talk about your kind of interest in the Vectrex and re-releasing old games and so on and so forth, could you talk a bit about the uh, National Video Game Museum? How did it end up in Frisco, and how did the collection that's on display come about? Well, a couple of things. So myself, there's I have two partners. Myself, my uh, my partner John Hardy, and uh, my other partner Joe Santulli. So over the years, uh, the three of us had done uh, a lot of different things. Uh, I used to run a, a vintage uh, a video game BBS uh, back in the late the late eighties, early early nineties. Uh, my partner. Uh, John, he also did uh, a lot with the uh, the Atari. John's, John's specialty is pretty much anything Atari, Atari computers or Atari game consoles. And then uh, Joe Santulli, he ran uh, he ran the Digital Press Fanzine and then the Digital Press Collectors Guide, which was I think probably the first. Uh, I don't know. We we used to put values on games. I, I worked on the guide with Joe as well, but we used to put values on games. What games are worth this much and for rare. Yeah, it was a it was actually too popular at the time. He Joe Joe sold a, a lot of books over the years, but we got together basically through trading through the mail. You know, at, at that time uh, there was no internet, so we would write letters or phone calls back and forth. And oh, what have you found? Or you got anything cool to trade? And and we gave we became pretty pretty close friends. Friends together, we started running a, a show in Las Vegas uh, in 1999 called Classic Gaming Expo, which was one of the first vintage video game collector gatherings or trade shows or whatever you want to call them um, at the time. And uh, we did uh, Classic Gaming Expo. In fact, the show that I was just at last week, the Port- Portland Retro Gaming Expo, basically got the idea from us. They used to have a huh. booth at, at our show in Las Vegas every year, and uh, they just took took our idea and, and, and went with it uh, ten times over uh, <laughs> We we got out of Classic Game Expo in 2012. That was the last show we did, and uh, we started looking for a, a, a place to put our, our collection. Um, one of the a- aspects of Classic Gaming Expo was the uh, the museum exhibit. So every year we would we would set up uh, all the cool stuff that we had in our collection and put it out on display. And, and uh, we were pretty rabid collectors at the time so we would we would get all kinds of stuff and stuff was you know was relatively inexpensive at that time uh you know pennies on the dollar compared to, to today so you could actually build a pretty decent collection at that time without going broke over it so mm. every year we would get more and more stuff between the three of us and we would put it on display at the class game expo and 
people kept asking us, well, you know, we want to see this stuff, you know, more. Where can we see it uh, in in April instead of August? And and uh, but we got the idea that uh, we should try and form a, a museum. And I think in 2005 we created a, a nonprofit uh, to that end. Uh, to try and uh, set up a museum, and uh, it took a long time. Uh, I think uh, I think 2000 and 2009 we we uh, we met Randy Pitchford, who is the the president of Gearbox Software. Um, they do Borderlands and you know, a bunch of other titles. The Borderlands is their most popular. Uh, we met him at one of the uh, expos that we did. We were doing a lot of uh, exhibits at different trade shows. We would go to South by Southwest and E3, and uh, we would. We would do uh, pretty big uh, displays at those shows, the the vintage gaming displays at those shows, and they were super popular. People loved it. But at one of them, we met Randy Pitchford, and Randy was uh, Randy was really interested in what we were doing, and he wanted us to come down to uh, to Texas, where his company was headquartered. He was headquartered in a city called Plano, and he was actually moving to Frisco. And mm. he says. He says, "Come on down. I, I have the ear of the of the government in that area, and." Uh, they'll listen to what you guys have to say and maybe we can put something together. So I did that. I, I went down to Frisco and, and I gave a presentation to the mayor and the city council and, and uh, they liked what we wanted to do and, and uh, they were all behind it. But the thing about starting a museum, uh, it costs a lot of money and it's it's really hard to to do that without some sort of help from the government. And mm. we had looked in several different places before we landed in Frisco uh, Ideally, on the on the West Coast is kind of where video games were born. So we, we really thought that that was uh, that was the uh, the ideal place for it. But nobody on the West Coast had any money at the time. This was 2009, so you know the stock market had just crashed, and and the economies all over the world were in kind of a little bit of a bad place at that time. But in Texas, they had money. Texas, uh, they were you know they were building they were doing all sorts of stuff and when we went to see frisco they were uh they were interested in the project they thought it was a really good idea and and uh, they were able to put up some money to help us do it and uh, i think we opened in we opened in 2015 to the public and uh we've we've done great since then i think i think this last year we saw just over eighty thousand people in the museum so it's, wow. it's been going really well oh that's great and I mean, obviously, the, the, the main reason uh, that we're chatting over the phone today is because of your interest in the Vectrex. And over the yep. years, you've released uh, various games that would have come out in the early 80s if the video game crash hadn't happened, as well as various other accessories for the Vectrex, like new overlays, replacement buttons and feet and so on. How did that kind of business come about for you to actually bring out new products based on this old platform? Well, virtually everything that I've done for the Vectrex has been things that I wish that I could have bought back <laughs> when I was, you know, trying to build my collection. Uh, overlays are actually the, the first example is the is the little uh, silver thumbstick for the for the controller. Like in in buying and selling and trading uh, video games for as long as I have, it's almost forty years. I don't know how many Vectrex controllers that I've seen that have gone through my hands either you know trading with somebody or, or or whatnot that have either been missing that stupid little silver thumbstick or <laughs> it was just destroyed you know so over the years i was like god i wish i could i wish i could you know 
buy these someplace in the same I mean sticking with that controller theme it was the same thing with the with the controller cable like I don't know how many controllers I saw where the the cable was just stretched out angled or broken or whatnot and I the same thing like god I wish I could buy new cables for this controller and you know that sort of thing was hard to do back at that time you know it's Mm. it's it's a little bit easier now with you know, global communication the way it is, I can, I can, you know, chat with somebody in China live and, and, and get things done. Um, but uh, all of that stuff, the, the impetus for all of it was, you know, just things that I wish that I could buy back then and I never could. So same thing with the overlays. I, I have all of the original overlays, but I always wanted to be able to, to have a really nice one that I could put on my Vectrex and not have to worry about what happened. Okay, if it gets scratched, I don't care. It, it didn't cost very much, but I would hate to put my, you know, minty uh, original pole position overlay on it and something <laughs> something happened to it. So now I can put a repro on it and it looks great. And I don't have to worry about it. And the really nice thing about your overlays, I mean, there are various other people who make overlays as well, including for the indie games. But yours, apart from a disclaimer that it's a reproduction on the back, are pretty much indistinguishable from the originals. So I guess, you know, it was important for you that in doing reproduction overlays, they be as good as they could possibly be. Yeah, that was that was the driving force behind it. Uh, you know, when I did the overlay reproductions, I uh, I went through four different printers and, and over a hundred samples that I rejected that, that weren't, weren't quite up to snuff. And, and, uh, I, I wanted them to be perfect. And, uh, you know, that there, there are some inner imperfections on, on mine and maybe I'm the only one that can see them, but, but, uh, I, I like to think that they are pretty accurate reproductions. And, and like you say, they're, they're marked as reproductions so nobody can pass them off as originals. And, you know, it's, it's, it's funny that you mentioned that, you know, there are other people, Stephen Cray makes, makes, mm. uh, Really cool Vectrex overlays, but it's very difficult to uh, to make them at home with the same uh, same level of detail or same same thickness, basically that that you can uh, when you print them professionally. In fact, uh, coincidentally, I just met Stephen for the first time at the Portland show, and, mm. and uh, we chatted. And uh, he, you know, he's a great guy. I really enjoy talking to him. And like I said, you've also released games that were meant to come out in the 80s and never did and now you've given them you know proper releases in era accurate packaging and so on i guess games like pictures duel like tour de france like dark tower were in various stages of completion when you came across the information that you had put on the carts and so required different levels of involvement with other programmers in order to finish the games i mean I guess it must have been easier the ones that were nearly done and then things like Dark Tower, which required a bit more polishing. In a way, was it fun to kind of imagine how the game could have been finished by sort of taking the project over, you know, nearly 40 years later? It was. In fact, you know, the one, uh, the only one that we actually uh, did anything to was, was Dark Tower. Oh. Uh, Tour de France is, is pretty well completed. Um, it's got a little bug in the beginning where... You have to hit reset to start the game, which I, I guess we probably could have fixed that easy enough. I, I just <laughs> I just didn't bother with it. But Dark Tower, uh, I actually worked with with Chris Malcolm there in, in Glasgow, uh, mm. and uh, Chris and I, you know, kind of like you say, we had to imagine what the what the ending of the game really would have been. And then I I actually spoke with the programmer of, of Dark Tower about it, and uh, the ending was supposed to be a, a, a second cartridge. That's why he uh, huh. he never put an ending on that. He he said that the uh, Dark Tower was imagined as a 
as a multiple stage game. So you would plug in a second cartridge to to complete the game. But in speaking to the guy, he had some pretty like he, he had some pretty odd ideas that I don't know that he really thought through, or or maybe from a hardware perspective. But his uh, one of the things that he told me was that Dark Tower Two, you were supposed to unplug the cartridge uh, at the end of the game and leave the Vectrex out and then slam the new one in and be able to pick up where you left <laughs> off. And I, I don't I don't really believe that would have ever worked, but uh, that was one idea that he told me. So I, I kind of I kind of question uh, you know how much thought he put into that processor. You know I don't think that he intended Dark Tower to have any sort of a fanfare at the at the end of it. He did have other plans, but I don't think his other plans were very solid. They were just uh, things, ideas that he had. So Chris and I went through and we came up with a little bit of a storyboard and, and we added a, a, uh, an ending to Dark Tower and uh, we uh, we had a lot of fun with it. It was it was really cool. And, and you know what we did with Dark Tower was we we added uh, we added the enhanced Dark Tower and then we left the original untouched Dark Tower also on the cartridge. So you can play it as it was found, or you can play the enhanced version that, that Chris and I came up with. Uh, you know, either way, whichever you prefer. But uh, yeah, the, the other one that you mentioned that Pitcher's Duel. Pitcher's Duel is funny story about Pitcher's Duel. I, I I met the programmer of Pitcher's Duel about three years ago, and, and uh, we, we talked to him about it. And, it was funny. He was just out of college. He knew nothing about baseball, so he never even watched a game of baseball on TV. So they told him, you know, go home and make a baseball game for the Vectrex and and bring it back to us. And uh, he did. He went home and watched baseball games all weekend. And uh, he tried to put together a baseball game based on what he learned from watching it on TV. But he doesn't quite jive with the way that uh, baseball is uh, is actually played. So. That's another one. Yeah, we, we could have finished it or we could have changed it, but we didn't end up doing it. The other interesting thing about pit, the Pitcher's Duel, it was one of the earliest boxes that I made. So I made a, I made a box for Pitcher's Duel. I also made a box for CubeQuest. And mm. They were much older um, at a time where, A, my uh, graphic skills weren't what they are today, and, <laughs> and B, desktop publishing possibilities weren't quite as, as good as they are today. So mm. I... I uh, you know, the boxes were what they were. I'm actually don't have any more pitchers dual boxes, but I'm going to redo the pitchers dual box in, in the modern way that I have all the other boxes so that it will match them. Some people will prefer to have the original box, and some people will, will want to get the, the new box so that it lines up on their shelf with all of the rest of them and it looks the same. But uh, it's always bugged me that that, that one and, and CubeQuest, the boxes don't match all of the modern ones, so I'm going to redo those. The, that's actually a perfect example. Uh, you know, that that's a that's a losing investment on my part. Would it cost me to, to put those boxes? I will never get that back. But huh. just for my own personal satisfaction, I really want a new box that will match the rest of them. So I'm going to do it. Yeah, well, I, I mean, I'm the same. I, you've probably seen in the Facebook group that I've created uh, designs for a number of boxes for the homebrew games just because I want them to match on the shelf with with the older you want ones. Them to match, right. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. But that doesn't mean, right? That doesn't mean that you throw away the original box. Maybe that original box that you got with that game sits in the closet or something, but it just doesn't look cool on the shelf with all the rest of them, you know? Well, indeed. Well, and actually they're all a bit smaller, so they they fit inside a full-size Vectrex box, so you get, you know, kind of the best of both worlds. <laughs> and then more recently, you released a game that no one even knew existed, A Crush of Lucifer. I mean, that must have felt like a real kind of archaeological find, making you like the Indiana Jones of the video games world. 
<laughs> yeah, that one was that one was a lot of fun. Uh, Steven Salter uh, actually found that game, and he was dealing with a former Milton Bradley employee on the on the east coast of the United States, and he had some other Vectrex stuff that he bought from the guy, and then he ended up having a, a, a stack of uh, prototypes and. The prototypes that he had were all the same games that you know everybody had already found. Dark Tower. He had he had a couple of different copies of Dark Tower, and he had Mailplane, and then this other one, Crush of Lucifer, that nobody had ever heard of. Um, it was just stunning. I, I'll tell you, I, I spent a lot of time, and and you know, in my efforts over the years, I've I've spoken to every every living programmer, the original programmers. There are, there are a couple that are dead, but. I've spoken to every living Vectrex programmer over the years, so I, I went through that list, and I'm like, do you guys have any idea who made this game? I, I, I can't figure it out. And nobody did. I, I still have yet to figure out who programmed the Crush of Lucifer, but it was it was the, the actual cartridge that I bought. I ended up buying it from the Milton Bradley guy. Um, the cartridge that I bought was on a standard uh, GCE prototype circuit board in a, a prototype GCE plastic shell, and there's no question that it was it was originally programmed by them, but who did it? I, I have yet to to figure out. But that one was a lot of fun. We, we had we had a lot of fun with that one. Mm. And obviously, you know, being able to complete a game like A Crush of Lucifer or even the work you did on Dark Tower, I guess you must have programming skills as well in order to be able to look at these games, see how they work, and you know, add additional elements to them. I have limited programming skills. I, right. <laughs> I wrote the the menu the menu software for the multicart that I sell. Um, I wrote that with the help of of another person back twenty some years ago. Um, but what I do have is I have good friends that are very talented with it, mm. namely uh, Chris Malcolm. Uh, he he's helped he helped with Crush of Lucifer as well. Crush of Lucifer was probably ninety five percent done. It just needed a little bit of a little bit of tweaking, uh, the, the collision wasn't very accurate and, and Chris was able to fix that. And then, uh, uh, a lot of the sounds in the game, those were, uh, what, what were in the prototype that we were found, the sounds were, we, we just called them placeholders. So like when, when you actually encounter Lucifer in the original prototype, it was this really obnoxious single tone that it played that was super annoying. And, <laughs> and we replaced it with like a little bit of fanfare, a little bit of music and, the same same thing with some of the sound effects. The sound effects were, were were a little a little rough, but the way we figured it is that the the programmer was was working on the gameplay and was going to go back and add a little bit of polish to it at the end, and uh, you know it, that was easy to do, and, and there was no need to leave the original one like we did with Dark Tower because it's the exact same game, just uh, just a little more annoying than, than what was released. <laughs> so you sell all these various uh, games for the Vectrex, and. You know, you have a little kind of additional page on your website that says, if you would like to publish your game via, you know, our, our production company, please get in touch. Are you disappointed in a way that people haven't, you know, said it would be great if you could uh, distribute my game? Um, no, no, I'm not actually. I, okay. I don't. You know, I, I offered that as, as a service to people. I, I know that I don't want to say that uh, I had any uh, inspiration or model for that, but but two things. So one. I know that Atari Age. Uh, I just I was at the Atari Age booth at Portland this weekend. Atari Atari Age had 24 new releases at the show and some some really good stuff. And wow. most of them, in fact, in fact, all of them were programmed by people who enjoy writing games and just don't want to be bothered with printing boxes or hmm. mailing packages to people. So they give their games to Albert, and Albert gives them a 
you know, a, a percentage of the sales, and, and they're perfectly happy doing that. Also, Packrat. Packrat does mm. uh, he does some Vectrex games for people. I don't really know what the 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 arrangement that Packrat has with uh, with people. Basically, I just thought, you know what, I'm going to throw that out there. Maybe there are people who would like to write Vectrex games and don't want to be bothered with the <laughs> the particulars of it, and uh, I would be happy to publish games. But if not, I'm, I'm perfectly happy not doing that too. I, I it wasn't uh, wasn't some uh, idea I had to, to make money or anything. It was more uh, more of a service, mm-hmm. though I, I will say that uh, my time is worth something, too, so I, I, I don't really do things uh, uh, like that just out of the kindness of my heart. <laughs> I have a, a family and four daughters and uh, everything that I do that, that uh, uh, has something to do with you know, mailing or, or distribution or, or stuff takes time away from my family, so that's, uh, that's worth something to me. But no, I'm, if, if, if that's not the case in the Vectrex community where they don't need people to publish games for them, then I'm, I'm perfectly cool with that. <laughs> and I suppose in a way you do uh, distribute a number of indie games because the multi-cart that you sell has a hundred different titles on it, a mixture of the original games and a mixture of uh, newer ones. And it's interesting that right. you know, you're know you not the only person who sells a multi-cart. There's a, a guy in uh, Britain who does, there's Madtronics in continental Europe who do as well. But each of the multi-carts have a slightly different lineup. So if you wanted to get all of the games that are on all of the multi-carts, you'd have to get all of the multi-carts, which I think is quite interesting in a way. And as a collector, yeah. I mean, I dare say there are people who will want to buy all of the various different uh, versions that are out there. There are, yeah, certainly. Um, for the most part, I mean, all, all of them have the same, you know, core group of games, but everybody's got, you know, a couple here or there. I mean, in order to include any of those on the multi-card, obviously you have to speak to the person who wrote the game and, and ask them if it's okay. Um, and most of them say yes, but, but some of them don't want them included. And some people have uh, different relationships with certain people than other people do. And, you know, I, I was always pretty pretty good friends with John John Donzilla, who, who doesn't write Vectrex games anymore, so... I have I have permission to put all of John's games mm. on there. I, I don't think everybody else does. I honestly don't know. I've never never sat and compared what's on my multi-card <laughs> to, to anybody else's. So I, I honestly don't know what games that other people have that I don't. But I've been told that, that some people have a, a few games that I don't, and I have a few games that they <laughs> don't. So I, honestly, it's just, I, like I say, some people want them all, and, and none of them are excessively expensive. Jason's is excessively inexpensive i I don't know how or why he sells it for 20 bucks but uh (laughs) he's happy with that and jason and i are actually pretty good friends so So, as we speak it is approaching the 40th anniversary of the vectrex itself and i think you know it's amazing if you just go to the facebook group to find out that there are you know four or five thousand fans of this uh, platform who are exchanging ideas about the machine Uh, many of them have created new games many of them you know create accessories like you do like um, Stephen does in the forms of uh, overlays why do you think there is this ongoing interest in the machine it's interesting I I get I get asked asked that question a lot because every one of these trade shows I do Vectrex is always my my center point and uh people, i just did an interview in portland uh, and they were asking me the same question and the thing about the vectrex is a it's unique right there's no mm. there's no other video game system that uses vector graphics like the vectrex does it's it's just that that's one of the biggest reasons and 
And it's simple. It's period. That's it. Vector graphics. You want to play vector graphics game, you either have to buy an arcade machine like Asteroids or Space Duel or whatnot, or you can play them on the Vectrex. The other thing about the Vectrex is what I tell people is that the the main thing that drives uh, collecting video games, in my opinion, and, and again, I've been asked this question many times and I always give the same answer, um, the main thing that drives it is nostalgia. So when I was a kid, I had a, an Intellivision in 1979. My, my dad bought it for me for Christmas. We played the hell out of it. And I enjoyed it. And at some point, uh, I got to a point where I, uh, I decided, hey, there there are girls out outside if I don't sit inside and play video games. So I'm going to go outside and find me one. And quite frankly, as soon as I did, as soon as I, I I found the same girl that I'm married to today, 40 years later, I decided that hey, I, I want to get my video games back. So I I started hunting down the Intellivision games that I had when I was a kid, and and I never stopped collecting from them. I never had any sort of an affinity for Atari games, even though I collected them, but I never had a, an Atari. So Atari games were more of a commodity. So I, I, I bought Atari games at at, uh, at flea markets and rummage sales because I wanted to use them to trade for other Intellivision <laughs> games that I didn't have. Not that I, not because I really cared about Atari, but Vectrex is different. Vectrex, I feel like you don't have to have any nostalgia for Vectrex. And, mm. and I, I find that with a lot of people. Most people didn't have a Vectrex as a kid, right? I, I, when I was a kid, mm. I only knew one person in my neighborhood that had a Vectrex. And Vectrex was only around for such a short time. But Vectrex is just cool. Even if you didn't have one as a kid, it's just cool. It's it's fun. The other thing about the Vectrex is that it never really died. So, like, if you look at the early days of the Vectrex and when they were distributing Vectrex ROMs, they were being distributed on, on Usenet and Fidonet um, back when nobody else cared about any sort of uh, old classic games, but they were still into Vectrex. They were making little demos and music mm. demos, and some of the earliest stuff that was distributed for the Vectrex was the the Figgy music demo or the engine analyzer or all of these <laughs> things. These were all being passed around long before there was any interest in any other classic video games. So interest in Vectrex never really died. It got a little bit smaller, and, and it's it, you know, definitely grown since then, but there was a lot of those. Um, those were... Uh, those were being passed around long before anybody cared about any other video games or, or vintage video games. You could always find those those Vectrex demos, and Vectrex interest never really died. It, it mm. just uh, it just kept going. It wasn't as big as it is now, but uh, um, even back then there was you know fan groups or little little cult followings of the Vectrex, and and uh, it was always popular in that regard. Mm. And you said that you know people are buying it now because it, it you know it seems cool it has a very different aesthetic to other games machines from the early 80s i guess because the vector graphics are kind of so sharp and clear compared to uh, the pixels from 80s games and not only that you know 80s consoles right. you may not even be able to plug into a modern tv so i guess that's another reason why the vectrex has such legs because you can just uh, turn it on put a game into it you know and it, and it looks strangely modern and anywhere in the world, right? So yeah, the Vectrex, yeah. there's no PAL or NTSC. Mm. It's just as long as you can, as long as you have the right you know, power requirements, you're good to go. It doesn't matter. So I think that's also one of the reasons why Vectrex has maintained popularity all over the world, not just you know U.S. or not just Europe. And do you recall when you first saw one and uh, your reaction to it? I do, I do. Like I said, when I was a kid, uh, only one kid in the neighborhood had had one. I, I still <laughs> remember his name and. and uh, 
he had a Vectrex and that. I thought it was really cool, but it was expensive at the time. And I already had a television and I knew my parents weren't going to go for it. So that, that was it. I, I played it a little bit at that guy's house and, and that was it. I, I wasn't really very close friends with that person, but uh, I, I was over at his house once or twice as a kid and, and we always played the Vectrex then. And in terms of any new products that we might see from you in the near future, you mentioned that you were thinking of redoing the Pictures Jewel Box. Is there anything else brand new that we'll find in your store in the near future? Oh, I got a lot in the works, Alex. I got a <laughs> lot. Um, <laughs> I got Pictures Jewel and Cube Quest Box. Both are coming. I'm in the process of, in fact, I'm, I'm, I'm almost finished. I redid the styrofoam for the inside of the, the Vectrex box. and mm. Multiple reasons for that. I've been talking, dealing a lot with Mike there in the UK at, at, at consoleboxes.com, and, and he has reproduction Vectrex console boxes, and he's probably going to distribute some of the styrofoam for me. But one of the reasons is, two two reasons, several people or many people have Vectrex boxes with either missing styrofoam or styrofoam that's broken or, or, or disgustingly dirty. <laughs> um, I think that some people would like to replace the damaged or dirty or missing styrofoam. So I, I think there is an interest. I had a few pieces of, of styrofoam, the original styrofoams, probably five or seven years back. And uh, I put them up in the uh, Vectrex Facebook group and they were gone instantly. And people are constantly, oh, I wish you had more. <laughs> okay, so I wanted to do it. The other reason that I did the styrofoam is that Vectrexes don't ship well. Mm. Um, they tend to get damaged and shipping pretty easy. And... Uh, People always ask me if I repair Vectrexes, and I turn it down all the time, even though I'm, I'm fairly capable of it. I turn it down all the time because I don't like people to ship them to me because I've seen far too many of them get damaged. And that was another reason. So I thought, okay, well, if I get the original styrofoam that was used to ship these Vectrexes all over the world, maybe they'll be a little easier to ship and, and people will be able to ship them back and forth. And I, mm. I thought maybe I would make available like a, a box that was the same size as the original box, but just a generic brown box. And then mm. with the original styrofoam, it, it'll give people a little bit of opportunity to be able to ship them uh, without them getting damaged. You know, there's a finite number of those tubes in the world, and there are no more tubes. So Indeed. the more of them that get broken over the years, the, the fewer people that get, a, get to enjoy a Vectrex. So. Yeah. Um, I'm working on the controller. I have a I have a perfect replica of the original controller designed. Um, I'm going to do it in both a wired version and a Bluetooth version, Ooh. and it will snap into the console just like the real one. The rule that I've imposed on myself on the controller is I want every single part inside of my controller to be used to repair originals. So they don't make potentiometers like the original Vectrex controller anymore. There, there is no company that makes them. So I'm having potentiometers made that are exact copies of the original potentiometers wow. in the original controller. So if you have a bad joystick assembly, you'll be able to take a joystick assembly out of one of my reproductions and, and pop it into an original controller and repair your controller or the circuit board huh. or the controller cable or, or the shaft. I see a lot of joysticks with bent shafts. I have, I've had the shaft remanufactured to the exact replica of the original. So every part in my controller will be able to be used to repair an original. And if you don't have an original controller or if you want a second controller, mine will be uh, available to be uh, as a replacement controller or a second controller in both wired and wireless versions. The other the other reason I did this is controller prices are just getting out of control. Mm. And I, I saw several of them at uh, Portland this weekend that I think two different guys had them for 150 bucks a piece. So wow. 
um, my my goal is to keep the uh, the replica controller and uh, at about sixty bucks uh, retail. So it'll it'll give people an opportunity to. Like I said, main thing is, is people want to have a second controller because very few people do have a second controller. But mm. uh, mine will mine will be indistinguishable from the original, except there'll be some some marking on it somewhere that that says it's a reproduction. Cool. Well, on behalf of the entire Vectrex community, you know, thank you for making these various products, and thank you for chatting to me about you know your interest in the machine and and bringing out these original games and the various accessories. Thanks, Alex. I really appreciate it. For more info about the National Video Game Museum of America, which can be found in Frisco, Texas, 30 miles north of Dallas, please go to nvmusa.org. For Sean Kelly's website on the Vectrex, where you can find the various games that were never released originally for the Vectrex, but are now available thanks to the efforts of Sean, by going to his website, vectrexmulti.com. That's V-E-C-T-R-E-X-M-U-L-T-I dot com. And as well as such titles as A Crush of Lucifer, Mailplane, Dark Tower, Pitcher's Duel, and Tour de France, Sean sells various accessories for the Vectrex, including empty cartridge cases for people who want to make their own games, reproduction overlays, which for anyone who doesn't know the machine, the Vectrex only has monochrome vector graphics, so if you want to change the colour of what's on screen, you put a transparent coloured perspex overlay over the screen. And he also sells such accessories as new feet for the Vectrex, a dust cover, stickers, manuals, a light pen, and much more. Chris Malcolm, who helped Sean complete the releases of Dark Tower and A Crush of Lucifer, has also released various games of his own, and these can be found on his website, binarystarsoftware.com, and Chris's various titles such as Galaxy Wars, Every Day is Halloween, and hacked versions of the original Vectrex releases to support new peripherals can be found from time to time on eBay, and a compilation of his earliest games, Bits and Bytes, can be found at Packrat Video Games, P-A-C-K-R-A-T-V-G dot com. Packrat Video Games are a company who have also released games by my next guest, Professor Pierre Johannesson, as well as one of his students. Professor Johannesson teaches Vectrex programming at Pforzheim University in Germany, and over the last six years, students on his Vectrex Academy course have created numerous new titles for the Vectrex, covering all sorts of different styles and genres. So I caught up with Pierre via Zoom to find out more about his interest in the platform and how he came to be teaching a retro video game programming course in Germany. So you've been running a course at Forzheim? Forzheim? At Forzheim University for a number of years. How on earth did that come about? I mean, it seems quite an unusual thing for someone to be using an old games platform as a way of teaching programming. Yeah, so it was um, back in 2014. I was thinking about designing an advanced programming class. And um, the idea of using Vectrex came to me when I had a phone call from my father. He lives far away and uh, he phoned me and he told me, I just discovered your old Vectrex in the attic. Mm. Um, Can I throw it away? And I said, no, before you throw it away, I want to play it one more time. 
and I asked him to send it to me and he uh, went to the post office and a couple of days later I received that big packet with my old Vectrex console in it and then I had one brilliant evening where I replayed all those childhood memories and uh, enjoyed the ga old games once more and at that point the idea came up um, I wanted to try uh, to write my own game for Vectrex. That was a childhood dream I had uh, back in the early 80s uh, when I was playing as a young child on that console. Um, the Vectrex is the very reason why I became interested in computers and in programming. Hmm. It was my very first uh, video console. And when I played it, I uh, always asked myself, how, how is it working? How does it come that there are objects moving on the screen? Uh, how does it come that you always end up losing against the computer? And so I became interested in programming. Mm. And all the other things I did in my life um, were decided in that moment. I wanted to become a computer scientist from that moment on. So then uh, when I finally had that console again in 2014, um, I just wanted to do what I had wanted as a child, write my own game for the Vectrex. Mm. Um, and um, my time uh, was very limited. I was working um, as a full-time professor. My wife is a full-time uh, professor too. And our twin kids had just been born. Mm. So basically no time left for any hobbies. <laughs> so um, I just thought, why not somehow combine it with your job? I had this task of designing an advanced programming class. I had the Vectrex and I thought, well, why, why not use it for that programming class? And um, of course, now one could ask why using such an old technology for a modern programming class? And um, the reason for that is that uh, during my uh, time when I worked in industry and later on when I moved to the university, I met lots of programmers who wrote completely bad programs, in my opinion. Okay. Not bad in the sense that uh, they would not work, but the code was just not caring at all for uh, wasting any resources. Mm. Redundant computations or a waste of memory. And uh, I became interested, why? Why there was so many bad code or so many, <laughs> um, let's say, not so good programmers around? And uh, the answer was simple. Today's technology is so fast and we have tons of gigabytes. Why care for efficiency mm. or for uh, memory efficiency, mm. runtime or memory? And <clears throat> that is why the idea came up. When using such an old device, you impose yourself lots of restrictions. So you have to deal with the very, very slow processor from today's point of view and with the uh, reduced amount of memory and so on and so on, all the details we love about the Vectrex. And when uh, my generation, let's say uh, people of my age, when we grew up in the 80s and started uh, to teach ourselves programming, it was mostly the old uh, home computer consoles we used, the uh, Ataris or the Commodore 64. And those systems, again, from today's point of view, were very slow and, um, and limited. Mm. Um, but that, uh, that forced us, that forced us uh, basically to use every programming hack and trick that came to our mind to make the stuff we wrote run efficiently. Mostly mm. we were writing games back in that time, games which our friends played. And those games had to run as fast as possible um, because we wanted to have as much enemies as possible on the screen. <laughs> right. So when we learned or when we started programming, that was 
totally a completely different world compared to today. And uh, I noticed, noticed that um, many friends I have from that time who also started programming, they were programming in a similar way even today as I do, not wasting any bit in a sense. Mm. <laughs> and at the, at the same time, these old consoles were so small um, that it was still possible to have um, a good idea of what is happening in the systems down to the very bit. So basically, mm. we know every part of our machines. Today, it's different. When young people are introduced to, to programming today, um, today's computers are so complex and so powerful, it's impossible um, to know every detail that, which is going on under the hood. Mm. And um, for me, that's one of the reasons why people simply do not care for the low-level stuff anymore. And uh, maybe also why they do not have that understanding of what happens inside the machine anymore. Mm. And the, the modern programming languages, they abstract all this stuff. Programming is easy. You can do programming without knowing any details of the machine, which of course makes sense today as software has grown so complex. But back in our days, it was completely different. We did um, the programming projects as one person shows. So we had to do the graphics and the sound and the programming mm. and so on and so on. And um, so the idea came up to replay exactly that with the students. In individual student projects, projects each uh, student is realizing its own project for the Vectrex, doing everything in a one person show tutored mm. by me, of course. I introduced them to all the technical details they have to know. But um, then basically they have to do what we did back in, in the 80s. Mm. And thus creating a deeper understanding for <laughs> what is going on inside the machine and also for efficient programming uh, techniques and also for some dirty hacks, which are just fun <laughs> if you know them um, about your programming language. Mm. And. I mean, I, I guess when you have a new cohort every year in the current day, they know what they're getting. But when you taught that very first cohort of students that they were going to be programming for the Vectrex, were they really surprised that you were using this old platform? And were they kind of terrified that they only had 4K, 8K, however much you gave them to work with? It uh, definitely was a surprise for them. Mm. But um, then again, I uh, tried to motivate that exactly as I just told you. Mm. And I said to them, well, let's just go on an adventure. Let's try something different, something uh, which is uncommon, unusual, and let's see where we end up. So the first one or two classes, they were sort of experimental. Mm. I was still learning about the Vectrex system. Um, we um, uh, improved and uh, created uh, different versions of our programming environment. So after maybe one or two years, everything worked flawlessly. But mm. the first years, the first uh, classes, they were quite adventurous and, <laughs> and lots of fun. I mean, mm. um, when I look back to my own uh, days at university, when I studied, um, I asked myself, um, from what did I benefit most? And later on during my industry time, I realized it was not so much the lectures or what we learned in the lectures, but more the time we spent in the evenings in the computer labs, talking to the assistants and trying lots of uh, interesting stuff for ourselves. And uh, this Vectrex programming class, um, I try to, uh, to live it in that style. Let's just try all the things we cannot do in lectures because there's no time for that. Mm. Um, 
but all the interesting stuff uh, which is not in the books. Um, and one of the fun aspects is uh, when I teach a regular uh, programming class, an introductory course, mm. we try to teach the students how to write beautiful software in today's <laughs> terms. Easily uh, readable, easily understandable, easily man maintainable code, which can be taken over by others to continue the work on it. Mm. Now, when it comes to programming for the Vectrex, um, it's almost the contrary. In order to make your game or your, your code run as quickly as possible on the Vectrex, you have to use lots of dirty tricks. You have to write code which is hard to understand and hard to read, but mm. which is fun to do. Mm. And even if that is not what you're supposed to do in your work life and industry today, you, you just uh, get a much better understanding of how code works by mm. seeing both sides. So the dark side and, and uh, the light side in that sense. <laughs> and I mean, I actually teach uh, the history of video games as part of a general history of media and culture at my oh, university great i'm so interested <laughs> in that um and uh and when i taught this uh lecture for the first time last year i brought my vectrex in and i also brought in some other old games consoles and it's interesting that the students are really into it they really a they're interested in the old pixel consoles but they're also interested in the vectrex i think because it just looks like nothing else you know the the vector graphics are still really sharp I think they hold their own in a way against a lot of other modern consoles. I mean, did you get a similar reaction when you showed it to your students? Definitely, exactly the same. And mm. um, I use all these specialties of the Vectrex to our advantage. Working with a vector um, machine is completely different than working with pixels. Mm. So the students are forced to think in completely different ways or paths. And uh, of course, this the Vectrex device looks so interesting and so unusual, and um, it, it's just um, it's still fascinating for today's uh, gen uh, generations for the younger people. I noticed. Mm. Yeah, very much. And it's interesting that you know you're teaching these students um, about the Vectrex at the same time that there's been a revival in interest in the in the platform. That since 1996. Um, there's been a homebrew scene that's show, slowly but surely growing around the console to the extent that there is this Facebook group that has four and a half thousand members. Um, last weekend, a couple of games were released that were only like a 60 copy run and sold out within a day. You know, it's, it's fascinating that it's a, it's a whole kind of like niche interest that is really sparking interest uh, in a lot of people. Do you find that surprising or as a fan of the machine, do you think it's kind of inevitable that something like this would come back into fashion? I, I know that uh, I, I knew before that there was electric scene of homebrewers who wrote uh, mm. games for the electric console before I started thinking about it. And um, in the beginning, I very much benefited from uh, the help of some of mm. those guys, especially when setting up um, the programming environment. So I needed a flashcard uh, to be able to run the games on the real console, I needed some um, programming software. I started using an assembler mm. and uh, I did my uh, very first experiments in assembly language. I did lots of assembly language back in the 80s. So I'm very well familiar with it. But today, assembly language programming is a lost art. It's not mm. taught anymore at universities or schools. So I had to reverse 
revert to a programming language which was known to our students. And uh, at least at our university, we start with teaching them C and then later on object-oriented programming and C++. So essentially, I had to find a way to work with C for the vectrex. And there had been some experiments done mainly by uh, Malva and Christopher Salomon. And um, I took some of his, uh, the things he had found out and the tools he had used. Um, and um, from that, um, I started creating my own C programming environment. And um, Malban is a very good friend of mine. We worked together. He later on integrated all these uh, C programming things in his Vida uh, in the, uh, programming environment. Mm. And uh, that is how I became introduced to the Vectrex community. And again, it's a wonderful community. There's so much friendly people out there. Everybody is willing to help everybody else. And um, what I did for the programming class is I'm maintaining a small website where all the uh, student projects are visible from the very first uh, day of the class on. Mm. So each student has its own small project web page and uh, the whole progress of uh, the individual projects is do uh, documented on these web pages. So the Vectrex community can see um, what we are doing, how we progress, and they give comments, they give feedback, and we uh, always use them as beta testers. Mm. For the students, I think it's very important to release their stuff to the outside world and get feedback from the outside world. As any programmer knows, um, you love your own stuff, um, you love the ways you do things, but that is not necessarily what the customer or the player wants. Mm. So we have some very nice beta testing rounds where we release our binaries and then the vectors community tries them out and gives feedback and we integrate that into the classroom course. Mm. Well, and, and not only that, um, the VectorX community obviously really like some of the games that your students have made. So um, in this year's uh, Vector War as part of the whole uh, International Play Your VectorX Day um, event, uh, one of the games that your students uh, wrote in a previous year, Hold My Beer, is one of the games that, <laughs> that people are being encouraged to play uh, for this year's competition. You know, do you, presumably that must be nice for you and them that actually the games have been uh, welcomed by the community. Definitely, that was great. At one point, uh, Helmut, uh, the organiser of the Vector War, started to include our university games in the competition, uh, which also is such a great thing for the students that they see that their games are actually played and uh, used in a tournament. Mm. And from then on, every year, one or two of our games were used in the competition. Get the okay. Beer was uh, last year and mm. it was uh, really well received and uh, provided a lot of, lots of fun for the players. And uh, for this year's competition, they also selected one of uh, this summer's uh, students' games. Mm. Cool. And then also, um, because there is this whole kind of homebrew environment um, for releasing games, one of your students' games was also kind of released professionally by Packrat, um, uh, Cowboy, Asteroid Cowboy. Um, that yeah. must have been a real kind of like thrill for them. And I'm kind of surprised that more of your students haven't, you know, done something similar since. Definitely. It was great that that game was released by Packrat. And uh, the student, he was so proud about it. And he also presented it later in a, in a work interview. He was applying for a job. 
And mm. they asked him, what did you do at university? And he presented them, this was my game from this class and it was published and so on. And the interviewer happened to be also a guy of my age back uh, from, from the 80s with a similar background. And he was fascinated by that and the student got the job. <laughs> so that Brilliant. was a fun coincidence. Mm. And I'm, you know, A, it's great that that student got his game published, but I'm kind of surprised that subsequent students haven't taken the same opportunity because I'm sure Packrat would have been happy, you know, to release some of the other games because there were some really excellent ones that your students have made over the years. I'm not sure if I recall it correctly. There might have been one or two others okay. which were at least given to Packrat. And uh. um, at several occasions, we talked about uh, releasing a multi-card, mm. um, the Academy multi-card where all the games of one uh, student class were collected. Um, that has not yet, uh, that uh, Pegret had not, has not yet uh, completed that project. But mm. uh, at least there was talk about that. And um, coming back to your question, um, every programming class, every of the Vectrix courses runs a little different. I never mm. know what I'm expecting. Um, how many students are there and uh, how good their uh, previous programming experiences are. So it's always uh, still an, an adventure for me. <laughs> and uh, I'm trying to somehow manage 12 or 20 different student projects. And sometimes we get very, very far and mm. still have time for better testing and maybe thinking about releasing the games uh, professionally. Sometimes we do not get that far. Sometimes the students are very interested in posting in the forums or in the community, and sometimes they're rather shy and uh, say, uh, I, I do not dare to, to give my game to the outside. Mm. Mostly they, they really enjoy it and um, they really appreciate all the feedback from the outside and all the appreciation from the outside. Mm. And um, alongside your students' work, you've also been writing new games for the Vectrex yourself. Um, so uh, Packrat have released your game Vecman, a really nice kind of vector version of Pac-Man. Um, they've released Rota, uh, which is a kind of um, maths memory game that I find absolutely impossible, but obviously other people, <laughs> other people are good at. And shortly, they're going to be releasing uh, Gyrostronomy and Gyrostrology, uh, which are your two variant versions of Gyrus. So I guess, you know, in order to be able to say to your students, I want you to use this platform to make games. It's important for you to say, and look at the games that I've made as well. Um, it's more that uh, uh, when I have to teach the students how to write Vectrex programs, I have to, or I had to find out first how to do that and what is special about the Vectrex. And um, I simply love programming. Mm. I enjoyed programming all my life and uh, in the recent years when I started teaching at the, at the university, I had less and less time to do any programming projects myself. Mm. And now the Rectrex programming class is my good excuse to do projects of my own mm. because I have to keep in shape if I want to teach uh, the, program the students uh, programming hacks for the Rectrex. Mm. And that is how I started uh, writing Rectrex games of myself, and I just enjoy it. And on the uh, gyro games, I worked for more than one and a half years, so it was a rather slow progress. Um, but I enjoyed uh, working on them very, very much. It's just because I love programming. 
<laughs> and um, of course the students sometimes they ask have you written games of your own mm. and then I show them some of the code I use the code as teaching examples mm. um, so um, I'm being a bit selfish I'm enjoying this programming class where I can do things which I love myself mm. but I guess it must be really helpful as well because if they're looking for advice on how to write their own games and you've come across a difficult situation in writing your own in terms of creating a certain kind of movement, in terms of creating some kind of collision detection, by literally figuring out those problems yourself while writing the games, it must make it yeah. easier to teach the, um, the platform as well. And, and also, I always try to project some of my own enthusiasm um, mm. to the students or on the students. And uh, my experience is that uh, if a teacher is boring, <laughs> then of course the, the students find the lecture boring mm. but um, if you can um, show them how much uh, how much i self love these things they are much more enthusiastic about learning all these things and they usually find it pretty cool if the professor mm. does something like writing games for an old machine mm. um when, when I think back uh, about the lectures I attended at university, which ones I liked and which ones I didn't like, mm. I had some brilliant uh, professors, which I really liked. And um, I always try to be sort of that uh, type of professor for my own students. Yeah, well, I'm, um, I'm sure you are. Create, create lectures, which, which I myself would have loved to attend. Mm. Th that is my primary goal. Yeah. And I guess, you know, for the... Um the Vectrex fan community, they're probably really grateful that there are a dozen new games being made by your students every year because they themselves can... So. Well, it means they also have loads of new games to play as well. So everyone wins, you know. <laughs> and, I mean, I've noticed um, looking at some of the feedback that you kind of... Um, or maybe the feedback that other people have given about your students' games, um, some work in different genres some people are writing platform games some people are writing shoot 'em ups and it's nice that you know looking back at the games um that were released for the the vectrex and have been released in recent years that there are certain types of game that are underrepresented there still aren't a great number of platform games so if a student is coming up with an idea you know do you say well actually this is a sort of game that hasn't been explored much so it's really good that you're doing it. Well, conversely, if someone is doing a game that there are loads of other examples of, do you try and steer them towards doing something a bit different? Usually I try to interfere not at all. Okay. I ask them to come up with their own ideas. Hmm. And even if it's a game that has been done 10 times before, if the student wants to do it, he hmm. or she, they, they can do it. Hmm. Um, so I asked them to come up with a, a game concept and a game idea. And uh, the only thing uh, I would reject is something which is politically incorrect or, <laughs> not, or inappropriate. But mm -hmm. other than that, they can write the tense uh, Pong version or whatever they like. And um, I give them some advice whether I think that this is doable or rather hard on the Vectrex. There are certain types of games which do not work very well on the Vectrex. So, mm. I give them that advice, but other than that, they are free to realize what they want to do by themselves. Nice. 
Well, as long as no one comes up with Spud 2, we should be safe. <laughs> <laughs> Brilliant. Well, thank you for um, giving up your time on uh, a cold Thursday evening in October. It's, it's lovely to talk to you about, about the Vectrex work and, and long may it continue. Thank you very much. Cool. For links to Piers Vectrex Academy classes and the various games created by his students, Google Vectrex Academy. And you can find links to my interviews with various other Vectrex programmers by going to panelborders.wordpress.com stroke tag stroke Vectrex. A trio of Pierre Johannesson's own Vectrex games, Vecman, an excellent conversion of Pac-Man, Rota, a fiendishly hard rotating maths game, and the forthcoming Gyrostronomy stroke Gyrostrology, an adaptation of the classic arcade game Gyrus, are available from Packrat Video Games. So is Asteroid Cowboy, a game written by one of Pierre's students, Andreas Bitter, and all of these can be found by going to packratvg.com. That's P-A-C-K-R-A-T-V-G.com. As well as programmers in America and continental Europe, as featured on the program so far, there are also people in Britain who are creating new games for the Vectrex. As mentioned earlier, I previously interviewed Chris Malcolm from Binary Star Software, and you can find my interview with him at panelborders.wordpress.com stroke tag stroke Vectrex. And if you'd like to find out more about the machine, why not join the Vectrex fan group on Facebook, facebook.com stroke groups stroke Vectrex where various programmers release tasters of their games that can be downloaded and played in a Vectrex emulator, as well as discussion of rare accessories, art inspired by the Vectrex, and yes, as I mentioned earlier, some video game boxes that I've also designed for new releases to make them match the older ones, which can be downloaded from the Facebook group. A game that's getting much attention on Facebook and also on Twitter is the forthcoming Vectrex game Verizon, released by Minsoft. This is a new polygon version of Space Invaders, with all sorts of upgrades, aliens, tractor beams, and more, to bring this classic shoot-em-up into the modern age. And I interviewed its programmer, Steve Hopkins, about what's going on with this game in progress. To give you an aural flavour of Verizon, here's what the first minute of gameplay sounds like, when you load the game into your Vectrex.
So Viazon is your first Vectrex game. You've previously worked on uh, a trio of Pico 8 games, um, all of which also have a kind of retro sensibility. Um, so I guess when it comes to uh, making games, you are kind of attracted to older platforms or, you know, things like the Pico 8, which emulate the style of older platforms because there's something about these retro games that you're attracted to? Uh, yeah, I guess so. I mean, I just like playing old games, really, if I'm mm. honest. I don't really play too many modern games. Um, and uh, the thing that attracted me to Pico 8 really was that um, I've never programmed uh, in Assembler or uh, anything like that for, for, for real old systems. Um, and the Pico 8 platform sort of gives you the opportunity to program uh, in a kind of a retro style, low resolution and you know few sound channels that's that kind of thing uh but with a bit more of a modern uh sort of programming language i suppose um mm. high level simpler programming language so um i just uh sort of was attracted to that as a simple way of getting into writing some games really mm. what sort of um systems were you into growing up uh i grew up well i, I had an amstrad cpc um in the in i think it was 1988 we got one of those um but i had uh, a, a relation or two that had a commodore 64 and uh knew the odd person with a specky and uh <laughs> electron and so on so I, I was really i liked all of them um i you know i know there was a lot of talk about sort of playground wars and so on uh, but when i was a kid um you were just quite lucky to have any computer really and uh yeah. i was more than happy to play on any system uh and of course at school we had the bbc micro so that was probably the first one i ever used actually um so i like all those systems really and and still do because certainly i mean looking at your games for the pico uh they remind me of um some of the games you get for those 1980s platforms um and something like cosmo boing you know feels like it could have been on the um the spectrum or the commodore while the other two, um, Tie Hunt and Tube Runner, it feels like you really set yourself a challenge. Um, a platform that's very kind of like pixelated and low res, I'm going to do a 3D um, game for it where you fly into a tunnel. Yeah, yeah. Well, the the Cosmo Boeing one, I, I, that was a fairly original idea, although <laughs> it was pointed out to me that it was a bit like a ga game called Bounder, I think it's called, on the Commodore which I hadn't seen, but it is kind of similar, not quite the same gameplay, but a, a similar viewpoint. Um, and the other ones, what uh, Tie Hunt was actually sort of a copy of Tunnel Hunt, which mm. is an old arcade game, which uh, visually is fairly simple because it's quite a quite an old game. But um, I just really like the kind of, uh, what's the word, the sort of adrenaline factor of it. it. It just keeps speeding up and speeding up and the sound gets more intense. And uh, yeah. That'd be kind of a fun game. Pico Eight actually didn't doesn't really have the a big enough color palette compared to the mm. arcade game, but it so I do use sort of dithering effects on it to make, to give it a few more colors or the effect of having some more colors. Um, and then the other one, um, which is sort of a, a kind of pseudo three D tunnel uh, with rotation and so on, mm. that was just an uh, uh, I just took the tie uh, what's it called tie tie hunt um, game and just kind of tried to soup it up a little bit really mm. so it, it did actually start off with that game um, and then I added rotation and sort of drew lines in between the rectangles um, to create more of a realistic tunnel. Nice. 
And actually, you can get a, a Tunnel Hunt style game for the Vectrex. So I wonder uh, if in the back of your mind you were moving towards the Vectrex by doing these sort of games. Well, um, I, I don't think I really was at this point in time. Mm. Um, but I had been thinking about writing a game for some old system, one of the old mm. systems that I've mentioned uh, just before. Um, and I, I've been thinking about it for years, really, and never got round to it. Um, and I hadn't really settled on a system. I, I kind of knew that if I made one for whichever system I decided on, I'd try and come up with a game which suited the strengths of that system. Mm. Um, so, for example, the Commodore 64, it would probably use the hardware scrolling and sprite capabilities and the SID chip, of course. And uh, I was thinking about maybe the BBC, because um, mm. there's a second processor for that which could be used to maybe do something a bit more impressive than could be done on some of the other systems uh, potentially um and then i th was thinking was thinking at this point about some sort of vector graphic game and of course um, i thought well what, why mess about with uh pixels to do a vector graphic <laughs> game when there's the vectrex so um yeah so then i've sort of moved on to that idea and I was actually thinking about doing one of the Pico 8 style games that I've done on the Vectrex. Mm. But um, to be honest, when, once I started sort of learning how to program, the first thing I drew was a ship, a small ship on the screen and um, kind of just uh, went from there, really. And, and that that turned into a, a space shooter rather than anything more clever, which probably would have been better. But um, I, I felt I should do something relatively simple before getting into... Um, any more sort of complicated 3d type stuff mm. well i mean i've played with it for a bit and i think the furthest i've got is the uh first assuming that there are more um the first asteroid level um so been through you know a, a few of the the shooting levels um and, and i think it's great fun you know i, I think you uh, you know should be really proud of yourself that you've you've brought out another uh a shump shoot em up uh for the vectrex because actually there's only you know a handful um, and it's nice that yours actually has these kind of like rotating uh, diamonds um, as the enemies. And that actually does show off kind of a level of 3D, you know, kind of um, simulation, you know, even in a kind of flat based game. Yeah, yeah. Um, well, yeah, I'm glad they come across like that because mm. originally I just really the, the graphics were just done um, with a with a view to drawing something with as few lines as possible, really. Um, <laughs> Because I knew that the more lines you draw, the, the sort of slower the game is or the more CPU cycles you're using. So I tried to um, design something that resembled a ship or, or a series of ships with as few lines as possible. So some of them, I think, only use uh, six lines, for example. Uh, wow. But then, uh, you know, I, f I figured the, the way to make them look a bit more like an object of some sort is to get some sort of animation going and... Um, and I did try to make them look more like a 3D rotating object. So uh, I'm glad I've succeeded to some degree. And it's interesting that the sound effects of the game uh, seem very reminiscent of Space Invaders. So it's really interesting that you've got this kind of vector-based uh, image. And obviously the, the movement of the aliens is far more advanced uh, than something like Space Invaders. But the sound harks back you know, to the very original uh, shoot-em-up that was created. Yeah, um, there is a bit of a um, sort of uh, inspiration from Space Invaders in a few ways, actually. But yeah, there's the sound, the kind of uh, kind of background uh, sort of throbbing sound, if you like, <laughs> uh, kind of uh, was definitely influenced by Space Invaders. Um, but some of the other sounds in it, um, 
uh, I, I suppose the there's like a bonus um, saucer that flies across the top, and the sound mm. effect for that is kind of similar as well. Um, but I think the rest of the sound effects are sort of fairly original, or at least, mm. um, if not original, then different to Space Invaders. <laughs> Indeed. And so in terms of, you know, bringing out a, a new game for the Vectrex, presumably uh, you had to look around and realise that uh, there is actually a really healthy um, homebrew uh, scene for the machine. Yeah, well, I've, I've had a Vectrex for, for since about 2006, I think, was when I bought my first Vectrex. And, um, uh, you know, I've been buying games occasionally ever since. I think Vectrexians was the first one I bought in mm. around 2007 or eight, whenever that came out. Mm. Um, so. You know, I know the fact that there are some really great um, homebrew games for the Vectrex, um, you know, better better than the original games, to be honest, a lot of them. Uh, and so, um, well, yeah, once I'd got something that resembled a game, I was thinking about, you know, maybe releasing it, um, you know, into the world kind of thing. Yeah. At the risk of tempting fate, what sort of release window are you looking for for uh, Virazon? Uh, well, I hoped to get it released this year was always my sort of target. Um, and I'm not I'm not sure if that's going to happen or not yet. Um, I mean, I'm, I'm approaching the sort of final stages. I've got the uh, the manuals have, have just been printed. I need to pick those up this week. The overlays should be being printed this month and the boxes um, are just about ready to be printed. And they're the final sort of things, really, those printed um, parts. So once I've received those, obviously, I'll have to start putting everything together and I need to build the actual cartridges and so mm. on. So that'll take a little while. So I'm probably cutting it fine to have it finished by the end of the year. Um, but if not, then early next year, hopefully. And, you know, you've just said that uh, it's going to have a manual, it's going to have an overlay, it's going to have a box. I mean, one of the really nice things about the Vectrex is that when you buy a lot of games, they come as a complete package with all of these elements. But also then, I guess, someone who makes the games, it's all sorts of different things that you have to think at, think about if you want to make a complete package. Was that kind of both a blessing and a curse? Um, yeah, I suppose so, because it's obviously, as you say, it's nice when you... I mean, I've bought a few games and they come with the whole package and it's really nice to get that because... Um, you know, it just, it does add something a little bit extra having an overlay, for example. Um, mm. But yeah, it's quite a, quite a big uh, thing to do because it, A, it takes a lot of time designing the thing. And I knew nothing about um, uh, screen printing and the overlays ideally need to be screen printed to get the sort of original uh, style and quality. Um, so I've had to learn a few things about screen printing um, and uh it's, yeah, it just makes it a hell of a lot more work than just programming a game, which in itself is a huge amount of work. But um, then mm. you've got you know more on top of that if you want to do the complete package. But at the same time, I guess, you know, when you have designed um, an overlay because of the way the Vectrex works, that you have to put this kind of transparent um, color in front of the screen. It feels like you have actually kind of like physically interacted with the machine as well, which I think is, is a really nice aspect, aspect of the platform. Yeah, yeah, it does give it um, just a little bit something extra, doesn't it? Really, um, and it, uh, it, it wow, well, and also there's a technical thing that it slightly reduces the sort of flicker apparent mm. on ah. something, or it can do anyway. Um, Interesting. Yeah, which can be used to your advantage a little bit. <laughs> nice. You said that you bought your first Vectrex in 2006. Was that when you first came across the machine? 
Uh, no, I think I first saw one. I didn't see one when I was a was a kid at all. I never heard of them until uh, I think the nineties, late nineties, was probably when I first heard of the Vectrex. Um, but I didn't see one in real life until uh, two thousand and three. I remember a game show in London called uh, Game On at the Barbican Centre, huh. and they had one right at the beginning of the sort of exhibition. As a uh, they had Space Wars running on it. <laughs> and they had a little article about the PDP-1 version of Space War. And I guess they couldn't get a PDP-1, so they had a Vectrex there. <laughs> um, and, uh, you know, you could have a go on it. So I had a go on that and uh, loved it. And then I got to play on Asteroids, the arcade game, which, again, I obviously I knew about Asteroids, but I'd never, ever actually seen an Asteroids cabinet because <laughs> uh, when I was a kid, it was all... I didn't see any Vector games at all. Right. So, I guess they'd all sort of been removed from the arcades that I was going in. Um, and I only get, got to go to arcades once a year on holiday. So, um, yeah, I suppose by the time I was old enough to sort of play on them, they, the Vector games had all gone. Um, mm. And so it was really nice to play on not only the Vectrex, but the uh, Asteroids cabinet as well at that yeah. particular show. Well, I guess that, you know, and that's one of the things I think that makes the Vectrex so attractive in the modern day is that while... Uh, you know the pixelated games from the 80s and indeed the pixelated games for the Pico 8 have a really kind of like nostalgic uh, look to them and kind of you know really suggest an earlier era of technology uh, with the Vectrex the kind of the really sharp vector-based display you know which harks back to games like Asteroids still feels somehow really new and I think that's one of the things that's really nice about the machine. Yeah, yeah, it does. It's got a, a sort of a unique visual way about it, hasn't it? And uh, especially the um, the sort of bright dots and so on that you just can't, there's no other way of sort of seeing that. Um, it can't be sort of simulated even on like a modern display, can it? So mm. it's very unique. Indeed. And as such, was it difficult moving from pixels to vectors when um, designing and planning a game? No, not really. I mean, I think the, the nice thing about vectors is that... Um, if you, you know, bearing in mind, you've got to be fairly, uh, you know, you, you can't be drawing too many lines, especially as a novice uh, like I am. I didn't want to be sort of trying to do too many complicated um, drawings as such, but um, you, you're, you're restricted by what you can draw with straight lines. Whereas with sort of pixels, you're, um, it's actually quite, can be quite a lot more complicated because you've got mm. different colors and you know, you've got to be quite an artist, whereas on, with drawing lines, you can sort of perhaps get away with it a bit um, in some cases without being quite as good an artist as you would need to be to do pixel-based graphics. Mm. Um, I'm not suggesting that people, everyone that does vector games are, are not good at art, by the way, but um, <laughs> in my case, um, I found it actually probably easier. Nice. And how are you planning on distributing the game? I honestly don't know at the moment. Um, <laughs> okay. I've got no idea. I've never done anything like this before, so I'm not really sure. Um, but I, I'm probably on some sort of online, you know, uh, shopping marketplace mm. thing. Um, and if, if all else fails, eBay, I suppose. Um, but I'd rather not do that. But I'm not sure I need to investigate uh, <laughs> what sort of possibilities there are. Well, I mean, you know, one of the uh, the Scottish programmers sells all of his games through eBay, you know, and it seems to work for him. So I think if it seems the easiest platform to use, it obviously has the largest reach as well. Well, yeah, that's the good thing about it, isn't it? That a lot of people use it um, and are familiar with it. So, um, yeah, maybe we'll see. <laughs> 
And um, if uh, Verizon is a success and uh, you fulfill all your orders, are you planning a follow-up game at some point? Um, I, not anytime soon, if I'm honest, because okay. I need I could do with the break from uh, working on it. So I've been working on it for over two years now, and uh, wow, you know, it, uh, could do with a bit of a break from it. But I have got some ideas for other games and also uh, some sort of application. I'd, I'd like to do like a music um, sort of application at some point, which would probably be a much smaller sort of project. Um, mm. That'd be quite interesting to do. Nice. Well, I mean, I did notice with your um, Pico 8 games, there were some really nice uh, chip tunes in there. Uh, Tube Runner in particular has a really nice kind of chip tune version of um, Potter Vangelis' score for Blade Runner. So um, while you can get uh, an app called uh, Melody Maker, uh, I think it's called for Vectrex, that uses the light um, uh, pen. Um, and I think also... Um, you can get a few sort of homebrew downloads that let you play with drums and whatnot. It would be nice actually to, you know, sh- show the sound capabilities um, of the machine, you know, in, in more depth because people have brought out loads of really nice demos. But I guess if you don't know how to do that or you don't know how to program it, a way of interacting with the machine to access the sound, uh, you know, sounds really cool. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I'm not thinking of making a sort of music. It wouldn't be a music making package as such, like, a, you know, with a sequencer and all that. Mm. more something like a tool for um just playing around with the sound chip and uh you know making probably sounds rather than music um mm. just because it's quite a difficult sort of would be a difficult interface to make a music making package on the vectrex i think yeah <laughs> and this this year indeed um, next month is the vectrex's 40th anniversary are there any kind of particular games that you've played for the machine that you think, you know, helps cement it as one of the, the great platforms? Some of the original games are really good. I, I particularly like um, stuff like Scramble, I think is a really good sort of conversion, uh, which is mm. kind of interesting as the original arcade one is, uh, is not a vector game. So that's it's quite a nice conversion of that. Um, I like Armour Attack as well. Um, mm. And... All sorts of other games. I think uh, Mindstorm is a you know, considering it was the packing game, I think that's a great little game. More more recently, I think uh, probably Protector's probably my favourite or mm. one of my favourite um, homebrew games, which I think is you know a good version of Defender. And of course, uh, the Vectrexians and Vector Pilot. Um, you know, I like both of those a lot. Uh, Gravitrex by uh, John Donzilla. The mm. sort of uh gravitar clone is a really good game um i don't know there's lots isn't there i'm just trying to think uh thrust there's a great conversion of thrust but there's almost too many to list isn't there? <laughs> there's, there's, i mean there's a hell of a lot of games for the vectrex now can, yeah especially compared to the original was it roughly 30 re- released originally so um we're well into the hundreds now i'd say yeah definitely and it, it's funny how you know playing games like um thrust and defender on the vectrex almost kind of like affects your memory of the original because you go back and see an older version you think oh it wasn't vectors <laughs> and it looks so yeah. nice on the vectrex yeah and i suppose the uh with defender the sort of particles that we used does lend itself quite well to the vector graphics even though it wasn't a vector game originally yeah nice well verizon is a terrific game and hopefully 
it may make it under people's uh, Christmas trees this year. But if not, you know, um, it, it's great that you've developed this new game for the platform and we'll look forward to any additional um, titles that you bring out for the system. Yeah, okay. Well, it's been uh, great to speak to you and uh, I'll be letting people know on uh, probably via Twitter when it is available. So uh, people want to look, look for um, my Twitter thing is at Minsoft Games. Nice. And you've been uploading um, videos uh, along the way so, you know, people can actually see the development of the game as it's going along and gives them a taster of how it'll look like when it's finished. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. For more info about the forthcoming shoot-em-up Verizon for Vectrex, please go to twitter.com stroke minsoftgames. That's twitter.com stroke M-I-N-S-O-F-T games. There's also a link to Minsoft's earlier Pico 8 games on our blog, www.panelborders.wordpress.com stroke tag stroke Vectrex. And as mentioned earlier, if you're interested in finding out more about the machine, why not join the Facebook group, which can be found at facebook.com stroke groups stroke Vectrex. As with the previous two Vectrex clear spots that I produced in 2021 and 2020, the broadcast of today's show is timed to be as close as possible to International Play or Vectrex Day, which takes place every year on November the 1st. And as an extended version of this 24-hour period where fans of the console are encouraged to play their favourite games and share their high scores with other fans of the machine... There's also a week-long competition called Vector War, and this year's Vector War 12, which runs from the 29th of October till the 5th of November, is encouraging people to play a dozen different games for the system, six original releases and six homebrew titles, including Piers' two different versions of Gyrus, Gyrostronomy and Gyrostrology, one of his students' games, Save the Planet, which can be downloaded from the Vectrex Academy 2022 website, as well as games by Binary Star Software's Chris Malcolm and others. You can find more info about Vector War 12 by going to vectorgaming.proboards.com. Tonight's clear spot, the Vectrex at 40, was recorded, edited and introduced by Alex Fitch and is a Panel Borders production. You can find my previous two Vectrex radio shows, in which I interview a variety of other programmers and a fan of the Vectrex platform on our blog www.panelborders.wordpress.com, as well as programs on a huge variety of other subjects, including comics, cinema, Doctor Who, and various other geek interests. If you're a fan of comics, my monthly radio show on the medium, Panel Borders, is being broadcast next Wednesday, and I'm talking to the creators of graphic novels about civil war, including Vanny about Sri Lanka and No Country by Patrice Aggs, a dystopian look at a possible British future. So tune in at 5.30pm on Wednesday the 2nd of November, if that sounds like your cup of tea. To play out tonight's show though, here's a fantastic chip tune rendition of Popcorn, as featured in Pierre Johannesson's rotating number puzzle game, Rota. Thanks for listening.
This program has been brought to you by Resonance 104.4 FM. If you liked what you heard and want to support our work, please make a donation at fundraiser.resonance.fm.